And Gabby will start us off with Mark chapter 5, 35 to 43, and Chris will read Mark 6, 1 to 6. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep, but they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Tylitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What this wisdom that has been given him... What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in its own town, among its relatives, and its own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Well, children, um, firstly, can I ask you a question if you're listening? When have you had to wait for something? When have you had to wait for something? Well, I wonder, when was the last time that you had to wait to the extent that you could feel your patience was being tested. Do you know what that feeling is, that frustration? It's rising up like steam in your body. And you do that loud sighing thing, that and you keep checking your watch or looking at your phone, that telling people in some passive aggressive way that this isn't going your way. Supermarket checkouts, traffic lights, doctor's surgeries, bus stops, airport check-in. These things, they can just trigger that deep irritation and anger inside, which, if it erupts, could be very shocking and painful to others. What about timekeeping? Are you consistently late or are you eagerly early? Are you bang on time when it comes to getting to work, meeting with friends or keeping engagements? Are you regularly texting sorry, nearly there, when your friend receives that, they know actually it's another 10 minutes at least? It's interesting, isn't it? Cultures, when you look at timekeeping, we've been looking at shame, honor, and fear over the last few weeks and how the gospel cuts through those cultural differences. Timekeeping is a big one for cultures, isn't it? In her features article this week, journalist Melissa Twig suggested it's not rude to be late. Maybe you've just got time blindness. 
Yes, that is a thing. Melissa confesses she despises her inability to be on time, but may have a new excuse. There was a viral TikTok that when uh, it's been watched, over 5 million uh, people have viewed this now, and it was a young woman filming herself um, in tears after a job interview where she was told that they cannot make accommodations for people who struggle with time blindness. And she was ranting about this and explaining uh, about it. Now, this woman is uh, neurodivergent, and this is an area she specifically struggles in. So it's especially challenging for her. But as Melissa recognizes in herself, whether it's personality, upbringing, whether it's habitual behavior, selfishness definitely plays a part in it, in our timekeeping. We prioritize what we think is important, don't we? Simple as that. And one of the reasons we don't like waiting is that it makes us feel unimportant. It makes us feel unvalued. That's why sincere apologies with good reasons are so important when we're late, isn't it? Because they matter to people because it shows we care. It shows we value. We care the person we're interacting with. And that's why, let's be honest, when we're reading Mark 5, that's why Jesus' response to Jairus in this encounter, is so shocking and painful. Jairus is, we've met him before, as Joel was preaching earlier um, last week on the early chunk of Mark 5. Uh, Jairus is an upstanding, well-respected religious leader. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. We see that in verse 22, if you've got your Bibles open. He's devoted to God. He's probably a person of social status and wealth. And above all, he's a caring, loving father who has an acutely sick daughter. She's dying. He's already approached Jesus and asked for his help. We know he's desperate. Verse 22 of chapter 5. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Now, here is a man uh, of authority and reputation, and he is on his knees before this out-of-town rabbi because his precious baby girl is as good as dead. This is 100% all-action emergency. If there were ambulances in, in those days, it would be blue lights all the way, sirens blaring. Get there as quickly as possible. Now imagine how this parent feels. There's hope because Jesus has agreed. He's going to come with him. He said, yes, there's hope. But there's also, with that hope and maybe some relief, there's bound to be fear, isn't there? That stomach gut-wrenching fear. Are we going to make it in time? But as they're walking, Jesus stops. Jesus stops. What? He's engaging with an old woman. A woman who's ill, but she's not going to die. He slows everything down. What's going on? She's, she's jumped the queue. Jesus, can't, can't you just park this chat and tell her you'll be back later? It surely would have been painful, wouldn't it, for Jairus? to watch the, the love Jesus gives another precious daughter. The time to talk with this daughter, to help her understand 
This woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, the lifetime of his little girl. Jesus slows everything down for this older, cherished daughter. She can't grab and run this woman. There's no, I've got what I want and now I'm off. He brings her out, not to be shamed, not to shame her in front of this crowd, but to fully restore her. It's what she really needed. And that takes time. It's important. He's giving her time so she knows deep down what has happened here in this miracle healing. There's no magic. Jesus' power, it isn't on tap. You turn it on and off. This woman is saved, he says, by her faith. That act of trust, that grabbing of his hem, his garment. He's telling her she is set free, free of her suffering. She has God's peace in the fullest sense. She is saved. She's brought into new creation life. Wow. Wow. If Jesus can do this for this woman, what can he do for my little girl? Wouldn't that be running through Jairus' head? As well as, come on, come on, can't we speed this up? But will we make it? Jesus, don't you realize my daughter's life is hanging in the balance here? It's on a thread. Why are you delaying now? Has he forgotten? Is he messing around with me because I'm part of the synagogue and this is his way of a power play? What's going on here? And then what the dad fears most happens. Verse 35, it's where we pick up our reading. And it's like a lightning bolt. Some people from Jairus' house brought the crushing message. She's dead. And then they insensitively add, don't bother the teacher. As the tears well up, as Jairus' stomach is gripped by a pang of deep nausea, Jesus says something that cuts through the storm of grief. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Think of the clarity of those words and how jaw-dropping they are. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Jairus and the older woman, and all of us have something in common. We share fear. We share it. We know it. It eats away at us. There are things or situations or people in our life that if they were taken our way, our world would collapse. Whether that's health, whether that's exam results, whether it's career, home life, a a member of our family. It's the storm we can't control and it scares us. And into our lives, Jesus says, just believe. He says, put it on me. He's urging him and us to still trust him, even in the face of terrible news. Keep on believing God and his goodness, even though things are looking really bad. That things could not have seemed more impossible. It's like Jesus is saying to Jairus, I'm coming anyway. I'm coming anyway. 
And this is where we see words of power and love. Reflecting on the woman and Jairus, Tim Keller, the uh, pastor who, who worked in New York City and, and uh, this year uh, went to glory. In his work on Mark's gospel and in this passage, he wisely said this, when you go to Jesus for help, you get from him far more than you had in mind. But you also end up giving to him far more than you expected to give. When you go to him, you get far more than you imagined. But you also give more than you expected. See, what does this mean? Jairus came thinking he would trust Jesus enough to get him to his home in time to, to heal his daughter who is sick before his daughter died. But now Jesus is asking him to trust him when she is dead. This is a test of conviction and trust far beyond anything Jairus expected. Everyone present knew the severity of the situation. The professional mourners were at his home. They're in full lament. They laugh at Jesus' crazy assertion that she's asleep. Of course she's not asleep. She's dead. Matthew and Luke make that super clear. He knew her death is real. Jesus wasn't saying, oh, no, she slipped into a coma. She really is asleep. He knew her death was real. But he knew something more. It was temporary. He came to do something that would seem as easy as a parent waking up their children. But the crowd and the mourners are a hindrance. So again, we see something very challenging here. He puts them out, literally casts out. And when you hear that phrase, and in the Greek, you're going, wait a sec, I've heard that before. Yeah, you have. It's what he did to the demons when he sent them into the pigs. It's what he does to the traders in the temple in Mark 11. He casts them out of the temple. You see, it's a loving thing to do. Firstly, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to them. Don't mock God. Don't think you know better in this moment. This is a moment to be humble, to learn, to see something amazing that only God can do. Don't mock God. You will miss out on a blessing. Secondly, it's loving to the family. The gift of a miracle isn't a performance. It isn't a spectacle. It isn't something to put on Instagram and see it go viral. It is a gift. It's personal. It's from the heart of God to the heart of those in need. So Jesus takes his three closest disciples and the parents. It's pastoral. It's private. It's caring. And it's something his disciples will remember and share for a lifetime so that we can know that he is the one who gives eternal life. So look what Jesus does next. It's like the action again slows down in Mark's narrative. He sits next to the girl and takes her hand. Again, what does this sound like? The man who was earlier touched by an unceremonially unclean, uh, a ceremonially unclean woman is now holding the hand of a ceremonially unclean dead child. The one who is touched is now the one who is holding. 
And Jesus isn't constrained by the ceremonial laws, what's clean and not. He's not constrained with them, by them, because he's the one who is absolute purity. He is the one for whom those laws point to, the one who fulfills them, the one who takes guilty people and makes them pure. He's the lawgiver. So he's not constrained by these laws. Jesus says two things. And they were so important, so memorable, that Mark records them in the original Aramaic. And they were read superbly by Gabby. Talitha kum. Talitha kum. His words are love and power. Love, because Talitha literally means little girl. Mark's translated it for us. It's a term of endearment. It's like calling a child lovely or treasure or honey. Uh, my, my grandmother, who was Greek, she would always, when she was talking to us as grandchildren, she would at different points say, inekoglia, inekoglia, at different points. And it, it means something like my little doll. It was, it was her way of saying you're everything. And she'd say it to all the grandchildren at different points. It's got that sort of feel to it. Uh, Jesus loves this little girl like a parent, which he profoundly is. The eternal son, who with the father and spirit, loves and knows her as his own child. As we've been singing, chosen, known, loved, brought into a family. This little girl and older woman are his daughters in the faith. He loves them more deeply than any earthly parent could. Isn't that amazing? And his loving words are powerful. They accomplish his plans. Kum means rise up. Get up. It's like in the storm, he told the storm, be still, quiet. In Mark 4, it was like a command you'd give to an animal. That's the the, the Greek. Here, there's another command, not to an animal, to a human being loved. Rise. Get up. Here is Jesus as a loving parent telling a daughter to get up. It's like he's waking her up ready for school. Jesus' powerful word therefore makes death look like waking up from a night's sleep. Can you see that? Whether it's healing her of sickness or bringing her back from death, this isn't a trouble to Jesus, the Lord of life. When he has us in his loving hands, death really does look just like sleep. That is the Christian hope. And as the Christians reflected on this account, that's why that word sleep takes on a new meaning. Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians, as we saw in our series there. We grieve but and mourn, but not like those without hope. We know that believers have fallen asleep in the Lord. There's nothing to fear. And yet we still need to hear the challenge, don't be afraid. Just believe in me. Christ's powerful word reveals his identity. He is the one in the beginning. The Father, Son, and Spirit. The God who brought life into the world simply by speaking. And at Jairus' house, Jesus brought life to this dead girl merely by talking to her. His words had power because he is God in flesh. 
fully human, fully divine. It's what we expect of him alone. And Christ's words not only impart physical life, for as we see elsewhere in Scripture, they grant spiritual life as well. Simon Peter confessed that Jesus, in Jesus he'd found the words of eternal life. You have them. Where else are we going to go? John 6, 68. This wasn't a mere assertion that the words of Jesus inform us about a, a best way of living life. No, this is Christ's words give life. Take them and live eternally. When we read scripture, when we study it, when we meditate on it, when we listen to it through the faithful preaching of God's word, the Holy Spirit is at work. He's at work in us. Once dead sinners brought to life in Christ. Children in his family. Being restored to full life. So we're fit for his kingdom. So what does this all mean for us today as we come to a close? What does this mean for us? Well, I think there's a warning. There is a warning here. And you see it in the second part of the reading in chapter 6. There's a warning. Are we to be scandalized? Are we offended by Jesus? The word for offended in uh, chapter 6 and verse 3, where we see word, the, the word they took offense at him, that in the Greek is, is the word we get for scandal, to be scandalized. This is what happened when Jesus moved on to his hometown. Even the people were amazed at the reports of his work, um, his teaching, the few miracles he had done in Nazareth to heal people, but it wasn't good enough. They couldn't see beyond the family ties. Their prejudice blinded them to seeing what God was do doing that blinded them from seeing his divine nature and his work. He's just the tradesman carpenter. He's the guy you get to sort out your door or if you need some new tools. We're told Jesus couldn't do any miracles there in Nazareth. But this doesn't mean that God's bound by our unbelief, does it? Is, is it like God can only do stuff because of whether we want it or not? When Jesus speaks, he acts. He's, he's not dependent on us to be able to do his work. Jesus did heal people when they had weak faith. He restored the son of a man who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief, in Mark chapter 9. So he's, he's not bound by our unbelief. What's going on here is the warning. Again, the disciples didn't think Jesus could calm a storm, and he does. No, he chose... Here's the warning. He chose not to exercise his power amongst the people who had turned their backs on him, who couldn't trust him, who weren't prepared to go his way. What are the obstacles, therefore, in your way trust to trust Jesus as your savior? What are they? What are the things hindering you? Do you want to get rid of them? Or are you clinging to them because they're more comfortable? Be honest. When you hear those words, don't be afraid. Just believe. Are you saying, no, thank you? And why? Come and pray about them. Pray about them today. They can go. They do not have to be there. 
This is the Jesus who wants to speak to you as a loving parent. Meet him in his word. Take a gospel and read it. Ask him to reveal himself to you, to speak to you. He will. And the next challenge is to those, to hear those words for us personally. Don't be afraid, just believe. It's a big challenge, isn't it, to trust Jesus with our lives, even with his timings. Isn't that true as someone who's been walking with Christ for many years? As a faithful disciple? When you hear those words, do they sting a bit? Maybe there are things you're waiting for right now. Jesus, I don't understand why you're delaying. Why didn't you show up as I expected? Why is this situation taking so long to get sorted? And at that point, we need to speak to our hearts. We need to say, Holy Spirit, speak to me. We need to have good, trusted believers around us who will speak God's promises to us. Who will help us see in the gospel that there's more going on than we will know. We don't have all the facts. We, don't, we can't see everything from God's perspective. And my tendency is to put myself center stage with all the action revolving around me. It fuels my sense of entitlement to have things my way on my terms, my timings. But wait a sec, the God who created all things, who's beyond time, who lovingly came to earth in Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin, dying on a cross, rising to new life, he is not my hired help. He is not my butler. He is not my PA. He's not a genie whose job is to make me or us having a nice life, making things as smooth as possible. The God who created all things is a God who knows all things, the God who is good, the God who is loving, and therefore his timing has a purpose. Right now, if God is delaying something in your life, it will be to show you more of his goodness, to bring you into that place of deeper maturity and authentic faith, a, a stronger love for him. Because that is his good plan, that you would know and love him. He's not frustrating that. Are you impatient with Jesus? Have you lost sight of his strong and caring hand holding your hands? Remember the grip of a parent or grandparent holding you in a crowd, walking down a busy street. There you felt safe, didn't you? But as we grow up, even the best, most loving parents, we know they're weak. They don't get it right all the time. They can't hold our hand 100% of the time. They can't protect us. But the Lord Jesus is the perfect parent. He holds us all the time. He calls us to get up. He holds us. He sustains us as we walk with him. Even through the worst storms, the longest nights, the bereavements, the most painful losses. He is there. I'll close with this story that I heard. It's from a few years ago, 2006, and it involves uh, a woman, Kimberly Deer, who at the time was 21, and she was from Melbourne on Australia. She was working in America, serving on a summer camp, helping with children with different disabilities. And as she was uh, coming to the end of that camp, her and a friend had planned to do a parachute jump. It was something they thought, oh, it will face our fears, we'll do it, it'll be a good, memorable thing that we'll, we'll do together um, in St. Louis, Missouri. And... Uh, 
as they, they came to the plane and they were getting all booted up and the skydiver instructor was giving her all the different things, they, they got up into the plane and then um, she was buddied up with, her instructor was a guy called Robert Cook who was just a year older than her. He was an experienced instructor. He had done 1,700 jumps or something. And anyway, they were filming it. it, it a great day was planned ahead of them. And interestingly, in quite a poignant moment, Kimberly turns and faces the camera as she's filming this and says about Robert, this is the man that's going to save my life. Well, as they took off, the plane experienced trouble. There was a, a passers-by, people watching, heard a, a massive bang and there was engine trouble. And the plane was too low for them to jump out safely with their parachutes. But Robert's experience as his training kicked in. He calmly turned to Kimberly and told her that the plane was going to crash. And she was already clipped into his harness because they were going to do this tandem jump. And he told her that he would cradle her in his arms and absorb the impact in his own body as the plane crashed. And he kept talking to her throughout this, calming her down. And so through tears, Kimberly did as, as Robert instructed, and she was enveloped by the instructor that she had only met that morning, hoping her life would be spared. The plane crashed. It crashed into an urban area. It missed houses. But Robert died instantly, and so did some of the other passengers. And Kimberly survived. She survived with some serious injuries, but she survived. Robert's body had cushioned the impact, and it had cushioned it enough that her life was preserved. His life for hers. And in 2008, Robert Cook, this American jump instructor, was awarded the Star of Courage, which is one of Australia's second highest awards for bravery because of that act of sacrifice. Now, when you hear a story like that, and as the family said after, her, her sister just could not believe someone would do that for someone they had only met a few hours before. That why question, why give your life? And when you hear stories of that, they ultimately point, and they should remind us, of the significance, not only of our own lives, but of the death of Christ, that central claim of Christianity that Jesus himself is that he came to rescue us, throwing his own life in harm's way. He sacrificed his own life to cushion us from the judgment we, we deserve, from eternal death. And you see, Jesus will not let us go. His arms are still around us. Because he is the Son of God who on the cross was forsaken by his Father, who willingly experienced the cost, the judgment of our sin. So that every one of us who trusts him will be cushioned, and not just cushioned, but protected, and walked with, and loved, and provided for, and sustained so that we will know the unbreakable love of God. Do you want that today? Do you want that for life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, you are the God who is in charge of our lives. We come to you and we ask 
that you would bless us, Father, with your presence. That going through difficult times, maybe there are delays in our lives, there are things that don't make sense to us. Lord, would we hear those words afresh? Don't be afraid. Believe in me. Father, may we take those words seriously to heart. Lord Jesus, walk with us as you promise. And Lord, if we're here for the first time, to respond to this gift of eternal life, this salvation. Lord, would you work in the hearts and minds of those who want to accept that this morning. May they know you will never let them down, that you are the saviour they were created for, the father who loves them eternally. May they come to you today in Jesus' power. Amen.